Let's uh, turn to the book of John, the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to look at just two verses there, and uh, we're calling this incarnational discontinuity. So have yourself an eschatological Christmas indeed, and uh, this will, the title may make more sense to you as we go, uh, but John 1, verse 1, and then John 1, verse 14, uh, I'm going to read that and then we'll pray. John 1.1 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John 1 verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father and powerful God, we are grateful and thankful for the great gift of Your Son. We pray, Father, that Your Spirit would help us as we consider the teaching of Your Word. May we grow in your sovereign grace. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. So, in, in the spirit of the song, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, I hijacked the moniker completely, and we're calling this Have Yourself an Eschatological Christmas. <laughs> Mostly because I believe that the advent of Christ is to be worthy of, I think it's a worthy matter of discussion, no doubt, especially given that it's Advent season. However, its importance, it seems to me, has dwindled in that we are oftentimes unable to see the importance of the Word becoming flesh, largely because the church does not have a grasp on the eschatological significance of this occasion. Our customary way of behaving uh, during this time of year is centered on many cultural things, uh, be it Christmas trees, presents, food, and family. These things, in and of themselves, are not innately pagan or problematic. I repeat myself. These things are not, in and of themselves, innately pagan or problematic. Just because you have a tree in your house doesn't make you a pagan any more than saying the sinner's prayer makes you a Christian. They can be stewarded for the glory of God because it's not what goes into the man that defiles him, but what comes out of his heart that taints him and renders him unclean. That's a principle that applies in a lot of ways. Nevertheless, I do believe that the greater threat to our understanding of Christmas is not Christmas trees, cookies, and a decorated house. The greatest threat to our understanding of Christmas is pietism, which is exacerbated by pessimism. Pietism, which is... Uh, born what really gives birth to pessimism. It is the pietist who lacks what we call an ethical judicial hermeneutic for Christmas. Just like anything, you have to approach it from the ethics of God's word and make a judgment based upon that. That's where we get ethical judicial from. It is the pietist who sees culture as being an enemy rather than something to be cultivated and thus conquered. It is the pietist who, whose pessimism is perpetuated in our churches, just to give you an alliteration there. And the question is, is what is, the, what is the pessimism that I want to address today? And here's the answer. It's the doctrinal demeanor that suggests that Christ's incarnation has nothing to do with history and that our history is headed towards abject failure and inexorable disaster. That's what the problem of pessimism is. I mean, there are many problems with it, but that's the key one that I want to deal with. And that is this demeanor that says Christ's incarnation has nothing to do with history. In fact, you know, he was born, 
He died, and now, uh, to quote a, a beloved uh, theologian, John MacArthur, he's currently in voluntary exile. And that really the, the main show is this obscure future time when he comes back and sets up an earthly kingdom, which the Bible doesn't teach that anywhere <laughs> at all. So there's this demeanor, though, that says it not, has nothing to do with history. And because of that, our history is headed towards abject failure and inexorable disaster. And the problem is, is this, this stuff, I see it all the time. Uh, especially on social media, but you see people saying, especially here in Virginia, oh no, the Second Amendment's going to crumble, we're doomed, Jesus is going to come back soon. Or maybe it needs to crumble so that true Christianity can thrive. <laughs> There's a thought, right? So this historical entropic pessimism, right, this, uh, this uh, theory of entropy, the world's just winding down, it's going to eventually collapse, we're all going to die in a giant heat death, the sun's going to phase out, and we're all doomed. That's, you know, the second law of thermodynamics, it's entropy, that's, that's pessimism. And because of thinking that way, Christians have basically, it's led to retreatism, and it's led to a fully conscious surrender of the world to the hands of evil. They know that they're doing it. They're fully conscious, having a pessimistic eschatology, a pessimistic outlook. You are surrendering yourself, you're retreating from the world, and therefore the world is left in the hands of evil. That is, by and large, the evangelical pulse. Now, whenever pessimism towards present circumstances and future prospects is allowed to run its course, dominating Christian thinking and philosophy, we need to figure out a way to properly respond to that, and we need to know where it came from. We need to understand where does this thinking come from? Uh, where, wh why, would we, why would we have a pessimistic outlook? Where is this going? When we, when we have this sort of outlook that is rampant in our churches, how many of you survived a Thanksgiving meal without fighting over politics or religion? Um, sort of kind of, you know, the, 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 um, the stereotypical... Oh no, don't talk about those two items. I, I like the, the, the guy who said, actually at our Thanksgiving, that's all you're allowed to talk about. <laughs> could, be, could be fun. But when we have this pessimistic outlook, we need to ask some questions. Here's some questions we need to think about. What are we supposing about the fall of Adam when we have a pessimistic outlook of, of history? What are we supposing about the fall of Adam? What is it about Adam's sin that is so pervasive right, the curse, right, in the world. What is it about that sin that's so pervasive that even the resurrection of Christ is unable to rectify the damage? Or has Christ's resurrection upended the sinful devastation incurred by Adam and Eve? Those are important questions. And if so, how has that happened? How has the resurrection undone what Adam had done? In what ways can we speak of the incarnation of Christ as it relates to real historical progress? That's what I intend to answer in this series. When speaking of eschatology, we need to remember that it's important for us to, to know that we aren't, we're not speaking primarily about the end of the space-time universe. This is where people of certain pessimistic eschatologies, they have a, a very um, narrow view of things. They think that we're just talking about the end of, of the space-time universe. That's very narrow-minded, and it suggests that when talking about eschatology, we're only talking about the second coming of Christ. And that's just not a proper biblical definition. To the contrary, eschatology 
ought to be defined as that system of theology that seeks to understand how the future intersects with both the past and the present. That is a definition of eschatology. Um, We're not navel-gazing rapture aficionados who are completely inept at seeing the connection between Christ's incarnation, death, and resurrection, and thus the progress of the gospel in history. Um, That's not cross and crown at all. Um, Eschatology is not about charts and speculation and hand-wringing nervousness about the future. Um, Eschatology, banking on the authority of Christ, uh, the authority of Christ's present session, he's called leader and savior in Acts 5. Eschatology seeks to learn the significance of the gospel of the kingdom as it navigates the halls of history and the road to the future. Okay, we're banking on Christ, his current session as Lord and Savior. He's leader and Savior. It's interesting that uh, the Bible describes him as leader and Savior. Um, He's led the way into the future by bringing the future to us is what I'm arguing today. So eschatology, we seek to learn the significance of the gospel as it navigates the halls of history and the road to the future. In short, eschatology is the study of of gospel hope as it blazes a trail into a glorious kingdom future. Now, I'm saying that, and I'm going to tell you something different, because that's true, but there's something else that's true with it. This is more apt to what I want to discuss today. Eschatology, Nora is the study of the glorious kingdom future as it blazes a trail into the present. Okay? Eschatology is the study of the glorious kingdom as it blazes a trail into the present. I needed you to flex your mind muscles today a little bit. Now, the reason that I criticize our woefully misled dispensationalist (laughs) brothers and sisters is because of this principle, which I think has been well established by folks in our movement, especially Gary North, R.J. Rushduni. This isn't, this isn't new, but here's, here's this principle. Are you ready? Christians believe in God, but not history. Humanists believe in history, but not God. Christians believe in God, but not history. Humanists believe in history, but not God. Humanists who desire to, and when I say humanist, I just mean at a bare bones level, all attempts at man's autonomy, whether that's false religions, cults, paganism, they're kind of all almost synonymous in in my estimation. Humanists who desire to transcend themselves through this vehicle of what we can call a radical atheistic statist experimentation, they believe that a lot of history, they believe in history. They believe that history moves forward into this communist sunset. But Christians who believe the gospel of Jesus Christ oftentimes desire to escape history, to to get out of it, believing that a rapturous sunset is far more glorious than the hard work of establishing the kingdom of God in every institution of life. So we're going to come back to those ideas throughout the, the series. Now, the title of this first message is called Incarnational Discontinuity, and I'll tell you what I mean in a moment. I'm going to leave you hanging for a second. John 1.1 1, 1 declares the truth about Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus, the speech of God, he was in the beginning, which ought to be understood in relation to Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, which says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
So the beginning, which is a timestamp referencing the very start of the created order, is what John has in mind when he's describing the Lord Jesus. The Word of God was there in the very beginning. Okay? Bereshit um, in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created. John says, in the beginning was the Word. Right? That's the timestamp. Before things were created, Jesus was there, uncreated. Note that. Jesus is not a created being. He was there from the very start as a person, uncreated. Um, he was with God, himself being part of the triune Godhead. And thus, with, thus the word was God, James argues. So we're not talking about the distant God of deism, nor are we talking about the pantheistic um, monism, this this incohate, uh, vague God that's yet to be developed. If we just, you know, all join with nature and we'll become part of this God as time develops, we're not talking about deism. We're not talking about pantheistic monism. We're not talking about any of those things. Jesus is the Word. The Word is part of the Godhead. Thus, He is God Himself. John 1.1 is a key text for battling the cults because they all get this verse wrong, especially Jehovah's Witnesses. They come to your door, they're going to say, oh, he, 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 um, the word was a God. That's not the proper translation of the Greek. Now, the remarkable thing that John tells us in verse 14 is this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory is of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. The exceptional thing about Christmas... And again, I'm using that word interchangeably with the incarnation of Christ, the advent of Christ. When I say Christmas, that's what I mean. The, the exceptional thing about Christmas is the fact that it was the ultimate historical disruption. It was the ultimate historical disruption. History had been continuously marked by sin and flailing covenantal conformity to the law covenant, which was outside of man. That's what history is marked by since Adam. Before Christ was born, we had a whole human race in Adam, inept, unable to obey Christ, um, apart from the Spirit working in certain covenantal people who were faithful, right? Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, that sort of thing. But that was the continuous um, route of history was all of those things. The covenant was outside of man. Man had to obey the covenant by God's grace, but man kept falling and failing to do that. But the Incarnation, however, being this strange and unusual event in history, was in fact the great discontinuity of all of history. It was the great discontinuity of all of history. So let, let me repeat with further emphasis. Jesus the Word taking on human flesh is one of the two great acts of discontinuity in history. The other one being His resurrection, which we'll get to, Lord willing, in two weeks. So you have the birth of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ. When Christ died, that was an act of continuity with those in Adam. Okay, that death is the result of sin. And Jesus completely identifies himself in that act of continuity. But then there's this discontinuity. Things that are abnormal to the world of history. Things that are just different. One of them was the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And the other one was the res resurrection of Christ. So I'm kind of taking those two things together today, as you'll see. So... Here's a major point I want you to know from today. The incarnation of Christ was not a mystical event leading to a religion of mysticism. It was an ethical event which birthed a religion of dominion. Okay? 
the incarnation of Christ was not a mystical event. People missed, they, they, those, especially Christians who have adopted sort of an Eastern mysticism view of life, they have taken the incarnation as this quasi, like almost like a Buddhist idea. And they have meshed it together with Eastern mysticism. So we, we reject Eastern mysticism and we reject um, Western materialism <laughs> in terms of evolutionary thinking, Darwinianism. So both of those are errors. But you have Christians who have essentially adopted both, tried to fit it into this idea, and they, they have lost it. It was not a mystical event leading to religion of mysticism. It was an ethical event which led to a religion of dominion. See, the incarnation can rightly be called an ethical event based on the fact that what Christ had done by taking on flesh was to disrupt the stronghold of Satan, sin, and death by restoring man through the power of regeneration. That's why it's ethical. That's why it's not mystical. It's ethical because if we saw in the Shorter Catechism, part of praying thy kingdom come is, as Jordan has said several times before, and he's dead on, when we pray that, we're saying that Satan's kingdom goes. That's, that's history. Christ's coming kingdom grows. Satan's present reign, as he's been dethroned, right? the strong man has been bound, he's unable to stop the gospel, his kingdom wanes. And all of this was not done by the snap of a finger. It wasn't done by a snap of a finger, but by the Spirit's implantation of the law of God in the hearts of God's covenantally faithful people throughout history doing what Ezekiel says, causing them to walk in his ways with the end goal of Christianizing the world. Now, one of those things we need to consider, and this is um, where it could get interesting, <laughs> so we'll see. One of the things we need to consider is the intersection of the past, present, and future as it pertains of our experience of history. All right. Um, this is no small task. There's obviously, I think, there's been plenty of ink spilled on the subject. Nevertheless, I believe that if we can get a few principles down, then we can begin to think rightly about time and history and gospel optimism. So, bear with me. I'm going to quote uh, a couple paragraph-long quotes, but they're important. The first one is from Rushduni in his book, Revolt Against Maturity. Here's what Rushduni says. He says, on the one hand, the days times present, are evil. On the other hand, these days must be clearly redeemed as a season of great value and meaning. The contrast is a dramatic one. Instead of flight from evil days, there is an eager purchase or redemption of them as a time or season of great profit and advantage under God. For this reason, because the godly man's concern is to redeem the time, Christians, and especially Puritans, have been highly conscious of time and the clock. As a valuable commodity, time cannot be wasted. This horror of wasting time is alien to those outside the world of biblical faith. Consciousness of time is for the ungodly a consciousness of decay and death, and drunkenness and a sick gaiety are sought as escapes from that awareness. Okay, all men experience time. And for the regenerate Christian, time is a blessing to be redeemed. You need to think of time in terms of economics. Most Christians, they don't have a category for this. You can buy time. Okay? And you don't buy it with, you know, fiat currency, <laughs> the dollar. 
And you can't buy it with gold or silver. Um, you can buy time by obedience. All right? Uh, just think of the story of Jonah. It's the fifth point of the covenant model. I, I remember preaching this a few years ago in Michigan. Um, when Jonah went and preached to the Ninevites and urged their repentance, judgment was coming for them, but he bought them time. They bought time by repentance, and thus he didn't smite them. That's what we mean by buying time. So, so for Christians, time is not a curse. Time is a blessing to be redeemed. Um, it has great value and meaning Rushuni says, and the question is why? Well, because under God, we can work towards the advancement of Christian civilization without being a slave to time. All right? Unbelievers are slaves to time. Christians are not. So we don't, we don't need to escape time. We need to redeem time. T time isn't something to fear. Uh, something to, it's something to embrace, something to redeem for the purposes of God and His kingdom in history. So let me, I'm going to say this as another important principle. The, the incarnation of Christ did not have the goal of redeeming man from time and space, but instead to redeem man from ethical deviation for the purposes of time and space. Okay, I'm going to say it again because this is so key to true biblical faith. The, the incarnation of Christ, the fact that Christ came, because John says he was in the beginning, right, with God. But he's also in the future with God. But he's in the middle of history. And why? Well, he's in the middle of history, not for the goal of redeeming us to get us out of space and time. That's the escapist pessimism I was talking about earlier. He came to redeem us from the ethical deviation so that we could serve him in time, in space. See, dispensationalists and other pietistic Christians, they don't have a developed understanding uh, for time, and thus, you know, eschatology. They just get it this wrong. Um, but Christians have always been thoughtful about time, especially the Puritans. And I want you to listen. Here's another quote that's very important. Harold Berman, he gives this apt description of the issue. And, and try, to, try to hear what it, what's being said. He says this, In contrast to the other Indo-European peoples, including the Greeks, who believed that time moved in ever-recurring cycles, the Hebrew people conceived of a time, conceived of time as continuous, irreversible, and historical, leading to ultimate redemption at the end. They also believed, however, that time has periods within it. It is not cyclical, but may be interrupted or accelerated. It develops. He goes on. The Old Testament is a story not merely of chance, but of development, of growth of movement toward the messianic age. Very uneven movement, to be sure, with much backsliding, but nevertheless, a movement toward. Here's the catch. Christianity, however, as opposed to those who would believe in a Judaic religion, um, not the true God of the Bible, not, they don't have the Trinity. Christianity, however, added an important element to the Judaic concept of time that of transformation of the old into the new, which we'll get to, I think, in the last week of this series. The Hebrew Bible became the Old Testament, its meaning transformed by its fulfillment in the New Testament. In the story of the resurrection, he says, death was transformed into a new beginning. The times were not only accelerated, but regenerated. 
This introduced a new structure of history in which there was a fundamental transformation of one age into another. This transformation, it was believed, could only happen once. The life, death, and resurrection of Christ was thought to be the only major interruption in the course of linear time from the creation of the world until it ends altogether. End quote. Now I'm going to explain that some more. We need to think about, it's important for us to consider the concepts of past, present, and future. Okay, this is, this is going to get a little scientific, a little mathematical, but hang tight. I think this is largely un- misunderstood, and given what I've already said, you can see why the dominion re- religion is rejected and substituted for either a power religion or escapist religion. Okay, so Christians either deal with time or they try to escape it. Or worse, they try to dominate it. And thus they become the power religionists that we so preach against with humanistic religions and other false religions and so on. So, what is the past? What is the present? And what is the future? Because the future just met us in this moment, here in the present, and now it's already past, because what I just said five minutes ago is already in the past. What are we to think of this? The future has met us right this second, and now it's in the past. That's our constant existence. What are we to think of this? The only way to comprehend time is by using a mathematical formulation, and usually we refer this as a timeline. On this line, think of a line we have right in front of us. There's a dot in the center. We call that the present, right? The left side, my left, okay, this is your left, the left side is the past, the right side is the future. Okay, we're, we're, we're taking a metaphysical idea and putting it on paper. There are problems with that, <laughs> but hang tight. So the left is the past, the right is the future. The intersection of the future with the past is always the present, right? Which means that we can narrow our understanding of the present down to this, two things. One. The present is the beginning and the end of times past and future. Okay? Does that make sense? The present is the beginning and the end of times of of past and future. That's where it all collides. It all collapses on the present. So it, it links the two. The present links the past and the future, and it distinguishes them. Okay? Two. The present is always the simultaneity of of past and future. It's the simultaneity of of past and future. In other words, the future is always flowing into the present, and guess what? It's filtered out into the past. Think of it like a filter. The future comes to us in the present, and thus it becomes in the past. Like, we don't even understand that. We're still trying to figure that out. Um, Well, I don't want to go too far off into the woods. Now, The unique thing about our experience of time lies in the fact that the past is something always remembered, right? We always remember the past. The future is always something we hope for, we anticipate, okay? And, you know, principles of induction, you know, you get into presuppositionalism here. How do you know the future will be like the past? And Because I've never died in the past, right? There's like things that haven't happened in the past, so I don't know that I can anticipate them in the future, so there's kind of a lot of those complexities here. But, but basically, the past is what we remember. The present is what we anticipate. So consider this thought, all right? 
if the future gives us the past, which it always does, right? And the past can't give us the future, then it follows that the future always has a superiority over everything else. Okay? We get time from the future. We don't get it from the past. We only get it from the future, which means the future has a superiority over, over everything else. If, if it's true that time is irreversible, okay, I'm just, we can't go back in time, guys, no matter how many sci-fi movies we create, we can't do it. It's, it will never happen, all right? Um, so it's irreversible. You and I can't undo the sinful things we did yesterday, but we can repent for them today. You know, that's when Jesus talks about don't be, don't be anxious about tomorrow. You know, you, you got, you, what's in front of you is what you have to deal with. That's, that's, great, that's great teaching for obedience. Step by step, day by day, walk with Christ. So time is irreversible. Therefore, it follows that the source of time is always in the future. Okay? Now, <laughs> my point in bringing this little uh, scientific study up is in the fact that the incarnation, which happened 2,000 years ago, did something more than just disrupt history for a few first century Jews in Palestine. The incarnation was not just like this one, one-off event, this anomaly in an otherwise uh, random universe of chaos and disorder. Oh yeah, that's right. Virgins give birth all the time. This thing just happened. <laughs> that's not the incarnation. The incarnation of the world of the word was a time-changing time. Uh, it was a time-changing moment of history-altering hope. Okay, the birth of Christ was a time-changing, uh, history-altering hope. Go to Revelation five. There's this vision. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But Revelation five intimates that basically history is rolled up like a scroll, and this is because of the fact that God not only sits enthroned over and beyond time, but He enters into time with His whole being. It's not enough for us to say, "Well, God sits over time." He's at the beginning and the end of time. That's what Isaiah teaches us. He's declared the end from the beginning. The only one that can declare the end from the beginning is a God who's at both places. The lamb in Revelation 5 who's worthy to break the scroll is the same lamb who was born, who died, and he was raised. God is not simply above time. He is authoritatively the judge of time. Time happens because God is. And the incarnation was this discontinuous moment when the judge stepped into the room we call time. And we know the future of Christ's already established kingdom. We know it's bright. Christians will largely agree about that. When that happens is debated, right? Despite the, end of his, the, despite the uh, details of the end of history, uh, Christ will be triumphant. You know, the, the old joke, some people are just pan-millennialists because everything will pan out in the end, which is... An escapist way to describe it but of course it will pan out because Christ is King but what many Christians fail to understand though is the fact that the incarnation of Christ was the future coming into the present which is now past 2,000 years ago so let me repeat what I said earlier eschatology is the study of the glorious kingdom future as it blazes a trail into the present future coming present when the Word became flesh, the future came bursting forth on the scene of history. It, it, get this right, and you'll get your eschatology straight. 
It wasn't as though God had to catch up to history to send his son. Oh no, what did Adam and Eve do now? We have to come up with a plan. We have to move with history and then we can figure it out and maybe send Jesus. No, 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 no. God has declared the end from the beginning. Jesus being born is the future coming to the present, not the past catching up to the present. The Son was already in the future. He came into the present, now past, in order to bring the blessings of this glorious future to bear in the here and now. That's why we sing, Far as the curse is found, because we know the future, the end, the end of time is healing, it's hope. No sickness, no death, no cancer. We, we have that vision in Scripture. We know that. So Jesus brought all that to us in the present. See, the concept here has to do with the significance of Christ's advent. This is not a momentary interruption, this pesky boulder in the middle of the river of time which breaches the smooth current of water downstream. That's not what it is. Interruptions, listen, interruptions happen all of the time. All of the time. A car accident interrupts your day. And, but a week later, basically things are back to normal, uh, assuming no one died, which is a larger eschatological interruption, which we'll get to in a couple weeks. A flat tire, a long line, driving at any time on Highway 66. An unforeseen expense, a water main break. <laughs> things happen. Um, these are interruptions that come our way. They happen to us for reasons, of course. The future rushes into the present. It alters our course for a moment, but only slightly. Afterwards, things just go back to normal. You probably don't spend your days worrying about that flat tire you had 10 years ago. It was a little interruption. And here you are today. The incarnation was not that. The incarnation was not just, oops, this thing happened in history and everything else is going to go back to normal. The reason that the incarnation cannot be seen as a momentary interruption of history is because what the incarnation gives us. Jesus Christ brought with him from the future regeneration. And regeneration isn't simply a drug that's injected into the arm for this slight momentary high. Regeneration changes absolutely everything because regeneration comes not just from the future, it comes from the God of the future. Jesus Christ as King is moving history along to what the future holds. And we're building that. That's why the analogies of the kingdom are always this small thing that grows. The, the, the rock cut out, not by human hands, but by God, strikes the statue in Daniel's vision and it turns into a mountain. Not in one fell swoop. It grows. It's leaven. So when a man's converted, we know that everything, everything has changed. His priorities change. Everything is now different. The, the new birth that the Spirit gives to us, you know, the Spirit, by the way, is giving as a down payment, a deposit on future promises. Paul says it twice in the book of Ephesians. This is now a brand new way to experience reality. You have a brand new way to experience time, to experience space. Future glory is now made tangible. We get a foretaste of the glory. And the huge implication, <laughs> we live for the future, not trying to escape it. We live for it. 
Mere interruption in day-to-day -day life will only disturb you for a season. But regeneration, it changes your life. It changes history. This is why the incarnation ought to be seen as a discontinuous act of God. The Word made flesh is a time-altering, world-changing event which sets the course for a new future and thus a new history. Because the Word of God became flesh, because He dwelt among us, we are now in a position to purchase more time for more dominion projects. This is the, pre <laughs> this is the precious nature of the gospel promise. And I'll end with this few exhortations. What we must not do is complain about time. How many of you have said, like, it's the adage, you know, the older you get, the faster time flies? But I'm up here saying, Isaiah says we should probably be living a whole lot longer, twice as longer than what we should. Is our obedience a part of that? Absolutely. We have to redeem time. We must buy back time from the banks of heaven. And the way we buy it is through ethical obedience. We do not buy time with the currency of unfaithfulness. We buy time through conformity to Christ and His law word. So by all means, have yourself an eschatological Christmas, friends. But do so knowing that the great discontinuity of the virgin-born child, it's not something we just remember each year. It's something we possess for the advancement of the kingdom in history. See, God demonstrated his control over history by his victory inside of history. And that demonstration is this ongoing project that involves every single one of us. So may Christ the King be honored in this nation and in this world. Amen? Amen. Far as the curse is found. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we give you the glory. We give you the praise. Um, we come to you knowing that you have declared the end from the beginning. And we trust the truth of your word. We trust the truth of the incarnation and what it means for, for history. Um, the fact that you sent your son Jesus to be born of the virgin, to live a perfect life of holiness and righteousness and obedience. Uh, and he went to the cross for our, for our sins. But yet you brought him out of the other side of death in the resurrection. And we rejoice in that great act of discontinuity. We are blessed and we are privileged, Father, to know your spirit who lives in us. And we pray, God, for obedience for all of us. We are after the obedience of the nations, God. And this is a daunting task that may take several thousand more years. But we want to labor today. And we want to see regeneration spill over into to this community, God, this state, this nation, and the rest of the world. So we ask for the power of your Spirit to, to grant us that, to help us each day as we walk with you in Christ's name. Amen.